Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Good morning. It's Friday, the 20th of October here in London. This is the Bloomberg Daybreak Europe podcast. I'm Caroline Hepke. Coming up today, Biden warns Hamas and Putin want to annihilate democracy. The Fed chief Jerome Powell suggests that a rate hike next month is unlikely. And Starmer's Labour makes history with a double by-election win. Let's start with a roundup of our top stories. President Joe Biden directly appealed to the American people to support funding for Israel and Ukraine's war efforts. In just the second Oval Office address of his presidency, Biden warned that both Hamas and Vladimir Putin want to destroy democracy. Hamas and Putin represent different threats, but they share this in common. They both want to completely annihilate a neighboring democracy. Hamas' stated purpose for existing is the destruction of the state of Israel and the murder of Jewish people. Hamas does not represent the Palestinian people. Hamas uses Palestinian civilians as human shields, and innocent Palestinian families are suffering greatly because of that. Meanwhile, Putin denies Ukraine has or ever had real statehood. I know these conflicts can seem far away, and it's natural to ask, why does this matter to America? You know, history has taught us that when terrorists don't pay a price for their terror, when dictators don't pay a price for their aggression, they cause more chaos and death and more destruction. So President Biden, his 15-minute address precedes a formal White House request for $100 billion from Congress for Israel, Ukraine, Taiwan and the U.S.'s southern border. The news comes just one day after the US leader's visit to Israel and both while he was there and in his Oval Office speech, he urged Israel against repeating American policy errors. When America experienced the hell of 9-11, we felt enraged as well. While we sought and got justice, we made mistakes. So I caution the government of Israel not to be blinded by rage. Those comments come as reporting from Bloomberg uncovered the impact that the United States is having on Israel's likely Gaza ground invasion. Three senior Israeli officials speaking on condition of anonymity say that the role and influence of the US in this war against Hamas is deeper and more intense than anything Washington has done in the past. In a first, Biden and Blinken sat in on Israel's war cabinet meetings, helping Benjamin Netanyahu, also the Israeli defence minister and opposition leader, to assess and to plan. The US leader also said that he had spoken with the Israelis about various, quote, alternatives regarding the ground war because of concern over civilian casualties and an expansion of the conflict. 
Meanwhile, the UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak is in Saudi Arabia to discuss the Israel-Hamas conflict. The trip comes after the Prime Minister visited Israel, where he also met with Prime Minister Netanyahu and welcomed a plan to allow aid into Gaza, with reports suggesting that that could happen today. Dr Mohamed Kwandel is the emergency director at the NASA hospital in the territory. We are in very difficult situation. It's catastrophic. It's terrible and terrible. No words can describe it. Those comments from Dr. Mohamed Kwandel come as Egypt's foreign minister said that the distribution of aid to the Gaza Strip should be, quote, uninterrupted and continuous. The Hamas-run health ministry there says that more than 3,700 people are now have now been killed in Israeli bombings. That's after the October 7th assault on Israel by Hamas, which killed more than 1,400, the largest loss of Jewish life since the Holocaust. Now, in other news this morning, Jerome Powell signalled that the US central bank is inclined to hold interest rates steady ahead, uh, again at its next meeting. We have to use our eyes and a little bit of risk management and, and patience in slowing down the pace to make sure that we are seeing the full effects. And I think, again, that's, that's part of why we've slowed down this year. We've, you know, we, were, we went very quickly in 2022 to catch up to where we needed to be, and now we're moving carefully with these decisions. Fed Chair Powell's use of the word carefully comes as rising bond yields are tightening financial conditions and he called geopolitical risks, quote, highly elevated. Yields on two-year treasuries declined after Powell spoke whilst 10-year yields paired an increase that pushed them close to the 5% mark. Elsewhere in corporate news, UBS is reportedly poised to start its next wave of job cuts at Credit Suisse, targeting about 10% of support staff. According to financial news, the losses will likely focus on areas including compliance, risk and marketing. The publication says that the Swiss bank has informed employees that the reductions will start on the 6th of November. The Labour Party has won two normally safe Conservative seats in one of the largest voter shifts in UK election history. New MPs Sarah Edwards and Alistair Stothern overturned normally highly safe majorities of more than 20,000 in special elections yesterday. For Edwards, it was a clear sign of the current government's failings. They've sent a clear message to Rishi Sunak and the Conservatives that they have had enough of this failed government which has crashed the economy and destroyed our public services. The new Labour MP for Tamworth, Sarah Edwards, there speaking, which until today was the Tories' 57th safest seat in the country. The landslide results are an ominous sign for the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, ahead of a general election that is due in the next 15 months. The London Stock Exchange suffered what it called an incident that brought trading to a halt for hundreds of shares for the final hour and 20 minutes of yesterday's session. The system outage affected mostly smaller cap equities, but they included a few high-profile names, ASOS, Deliveroo and Metro Bank. According to the LSE, stocks on the FTSE 100, uh, FTSE 250 and international order book were not affected. However, it's not the first time that the UK's main stock trading venue has suffered from a glitch with outages coming in both 2019 and 2018. 
Now, every speech, every word from the chair of the Federal Reserve is high stakes for investors. So we're going to bring you in just a moment Jerome Powell's interview with our own David Weston. This was a fireside chat at the Economic Club of New York. It was quite revealing about why the central bank um, may still see more interest rates ahead, more a tightening of financial conditions. And yet for the next meeting, the possibility that the Fed could be on hold. So um, it's a really great interview. Uh, interview with David Weston and Jerome Powell. So that is going to be coming up in just a moment then here on Bloomberg Radio, crucial for our investors. Now, uh, let's also think about the address then from President Biden, a 15-minute address, very unusual, only the second of uh, President Joe Biden's uh, presidency. Uh, He appealed directly to the American people to support funding both for Israel and also for Ukraine's war efforts, warning that Hamas and Putin present parallel threats to American democracy. Joining me now to discuss is Stuart Livingston Wallace, who is Bloomberg's head of coverage for the Middle East and North Africa. Good morning, Stuart. Thank you for your time. Biden's address, trying to convince Americans about why they should support Israel and Ukraine. How did he frame it um, as he tries to get funding from Congress? It was focused on American democracy, but also on, on global democracy. Again, how did he frame this speech? Yeah, good morning, Caroline. Yeah, he sort of wrapped it all up together uh, and basically put Hamas on a par with Putin uh, and uh, others uh, and sort of said this was a a threat to U.S. democracy. So it is very much a a global idea and and really the idea behind it, or at least what what we will get in practice, is a a demand or rather a request for $100 billion in resources uh, and that will be channeled towards Israel, Ukraine, Taiwan, and the U.S. southern border. So it's all sort of wrapped up in one big idea that what's going on uh, in Gaza and southern Israel is part of a global picture of threats to to U.S. interests. Mm. Um, Bloomberg is reporting that the U.S. is influencing, is having impact on how Israel actually proceeds with its aim of trying to eradicate Hamas in Gaza. Yeah, and I, and I and I would take it beyond that. I mean, I think we've seen the steady stream of G7 leaders uh, make their way to Israel uh, over the last, what would it be, 10 days or so. And I think really the attempt there is to figure out, uh, well, twofold, number one, what a ground war might look like and how it and how it might be carried out, but also more importantly, how you contain that situation. So you have seen, for instance, uh, an increase in attacks on U.S. bases in Iraq. You've seen some missiles fired from the Houthis in Yemen heading towards Israel. They were intercepted. You've seen rocket attacks coming across from uh, South Lebanon, uh, and. Yeah, I, I suppose more is a precautionary thing than anything else. You have seen some uh, Israeli diplomats pulled out of consulates and embassies across the Middle East, notably in Turkey, yesterday. Um, so all of that, I think, is sort of part of one picture of trying to contain that situation and making sure it doesn't spread too far. But if you look at the reaction that you've had from the Arab world or the Arab capitals, you know, they have typically, they started off, uh, I would say, softly by historical standards, and they've got increasingly... Um, Forceful uh, in the last several days, particularly after you know one or two incidents that really have uh, sparked uh, a degree of anger within within those populations. Mm. In 
terms of um, the Palestinians and uh, aid to Gazan civilians, uh, Egypt, uh, but also the UN, are calling for distribution of aid to be, quote, uninterrupted and continuous. And so this is this whole argument about the Rafa border crossing. It's the only official entry point into Gaza that's not controlled by Israel. Do you think that that's actually going to open today for convoys? What, what do we know about that? It seems very unlikely it will be today. Uh, that doesn't mean it won't happen, but... Uh the reporting out there, not just from ourselves, but, but from other media, uh, is that the weekend seems more likely. Now, you can hear a certain hesitancy in my tone because really no one knows. Um, and, you know, on top of that, I should say that the while well, we have something like 100 trucks lined up uh, outside that crossing, the context is that those 100 trucks barely make a dent in terms of the supplies that are needed within Gaza. You know, again, remember this is a a territory that tends to um, import just about everything. Uh, It's been cut off now for some time. We know most of the power is out. Um, Vast amounts of aid are going to be needed for the the, the size of that population. Uh, But yeah, so so far nothing. Uh, We continue to watch, but I think the expectations for today are pretty low. The big question then also is what happens to Gaza in the longer term? The options are looking really difficult. Um, how, how do we think about those now, though? Yeah, I mean, there are, there are no good solutions, uh, it would seem. So, uh, I mean, I suppose at the most basic level, we'll, we will have to see what happens over the next several weeks in terms of damage to infrastructure. Uh, we will also have to see how the situation evolves, for instance, on that border crossing and, you know, can anyone come out? Uh, and then, you know, finally, what is the long-term solution if, if Israel, as indeed it has, has said that its intention is really just to completely dismantle Hamas one way or another? Um, what does that mean for civil, uh, civil administration in the territory? What does it mean for international relations? What does it mean for its relationship with the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank? Um, you know, might conceivably, and I'm, you know, really speculating at this stage. You know, might might you have some sort of international um, body or force that's somehow involved mm-hmm. in administrating administrating the territory? But again, I really am in the realms of, realms of speculation now. Yeah, um, absolutely. But the the kind of thinking about um, the long term versus the the shorter term, I suppose. Um, in terms of other actors in this, I mean, Bloomberg's reported on China's stance on Hamas um, and the US envoy talking about how that is a distinction between the US and China. Um, we've had, as you say, a whole host of global leaders there. Are we expecting more of that? And and in terms of timing, then of of escalation, what are we thinking about in the next few days? Well, um, we don't have anyone on the agenda, that is, in terms of sort of international arrivals. Uh, that doesn't mean that you won't get any. Uh, you know, the Biden visit was sort of fairly put together fairly quickly with a sort of a couple of days' notice, at least from, from as far as we were concerned. And uh, I suppose the feeling is that if you can keep getting leaders going in, maybe that delays uh, a ground war. But I think our reporting has shown over the last couple of days that there's not really been much of a, a change of mood within Israel in terms of its intention really to, to dismantle Hamas. And, you know, given the way things are both uh, in Gaza uh, or mainly in Gaza, it's very hard to see how you can do that without some sort of boots on the ground. Now, quite what that might look like uh, and how long that might last, but still, again, you know, we, we just don't know. But it does feel, as I say, the mood within Israel hasn't really changed with all those visits. Yeah, um, the global ramifications. I mean, if this, you know, if this is basically a, a second major war 
for President Biden, for example, in the last couple of years, but obviously for everybody in the world, this is a second huge war. This has economic impact. Um, it certainly is having an impact on the oil price. How are we thinking about that sort of transmission mechanism into investors? Yeah, I mean, I, I think really it comes down to whether this spreads. So um, was it yesterday or before? Uh, we had Iran um, sort of calling for a boycott on uh, oil sales. Uh, to Israel now, you know, within the, the scope of the oil market, that's a rounding error. But it sort of, again, set off those concerns that this might escalate, this might spread wider. Um, and, you know, thinking particularly about this region, it is primarily uh, of importance for two things. One is energy supply, number two is shipping lanes. Uh, and that's hugely important. You know, a vast amount of the world's trade goes through this region. So in a scenario where the conflict spreads to other countries and other bits of the region and you have any sort of disruption to shipping that obviously has an immediate inflationary impact. Uh, again, though, at this stage, it's, it's very much concerns rather than any actual fact. Uh, mm-hmm. So you've seen jitters in the oil market, for sure. You know, we're up a, what, another percent or so today. But, um, you know, if, if I think if those fears really do unfold and come true, then, you know, you should expect things to be, or prices to be sharply higher. Okay. Stuart, thank you so much for your time this morning. Stuart Livingston Wallace is Bloomberg's head of coverage for the Middle East and North Africa, taking us through uh, the latest on the Israel Hamas war. Thank you. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors Inc. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Now, I said that we would uh, be hearing from our interview with the Federal Reserve Chair, Jerome Powell. He sat down for a wide-ranging interview with Bloomberg's David Weston. Uh, Powell talking about his outlook for the central bank's policy path as it continues to tighten its cycle, the tightening cycle of, of rising interest rates. They were speaking just earlier at the Economic Club of New York. We are seeing those, the effects where we expect to see them, which is interest-sensitive spending and also asset prices to some extent, uh, and the exchange rate, which you're also seeing a strong exchange rate, which is, which is disinflationary. So I don't think there's a, a fundamental change in the way monetary policy affects the economy. And again, it goes back to just very strong demand. We take the economy as it is. We take fiscal policy and the economy and all the things we don't control. They come to us, and we conduct policy always to achieve maximum employment and stable prices. So we just take what comes. The fact that we have a strong growing economy, a strong growing labor market, and uh, 
you know, inflation coming down. These are the elements that we want to, to see that, to achieve the, the outcome we want. How much effect thus far has the Fed had? Uh, we, we all have memorized now long and variable lags. How long and how variable? And where are you in that process? Are you at the 25% point, the 50% in terms of seeing it in the effect in the real economy? So there's, there's no precision in, the, uh, in, in our understanding of, of how long lags are. Um, one thing that has changed in the modern era is that markets now, uh, over the course of the last 30 years, central banks have decided instead of being secretive to be very transparent. And what that has meant is that markets move actually well in anticipation, well before our policy moves. So the transmission from policy moves to, to financial conditions actually happens before the moves now, whereas that was not the case 50 years ago when Milton Friedman you know, coined the phrase long and variable lags. So, but now you have financial conditions changing and the question is how does it affect the economy? The standard channels are uh, asset prices, interest sensitive spending and the exchange rate, for example. And we, again, we do see that happening just not as fast as we would like. And I would attribute some of that to just stronger demand. You know, household savings were, were turned out to be higher. Household spending has been stronger, and that's by far the largest part of the economy. In order to conduct monetary policy effectively, do you need at least a hypothesis about how much has already hit the economy? Because it's hard to know how much more you need to do if you don't know how far you've come. So on, on lags, I think if you think back, it's been a year since, now since, since the last 75 basis point hike we did. It was at the November meeting in 2022. The first one was in June, so it's more than a year. So we should be seeing the effects by the way, they don't all just arrive on one day. They, they arrive and then they're thought to peak and then to diminish. So there's a lot of uncertainty around lags. Um, and one of the reasons why we have slowed down significantly this year is to give monetary policy time to work. The truth is, though, you can find academic support for different, different speeds of, and, and duration of lags. So we have to use our eyes and a little bit of risk management and, and patience in slowing down the pace to make sure that we are seeing the full effects, and I think, again, that's that's part of why we've slowed down this year. We've, you know, we were we went very quickly in 2022 to catch up to where we need to be, and now we're moving carefully with these decisions. Uh, so, w w when you spoke back in August of 2020 and sort of laid out the revisions to the framework, as it were, uh, you said that in terms of anticipated growth, the sort of consensus had gone from something like 2.5 to 1.8 percent. I think were the numbers you laid out in that. Where are you now? Where's the Fed? Where are you? And what you think basically the long-run growth is? Long-run potential growth um, is not something that moves around a lot over time, but I would, my, my own guess is it's around 2%. I think that the, the standard mainstream view would be a little bit below 2%, but I would just say 2% real growth uh, over time. And you know, what, what causes growth is you know, growth in hours worked plus growth in productivity. Growth in hours worked is, is a function of population growth in the long run and also labor force participation. Many things affect productivity. But if you, if you drop in reasonable, standard, longer term estimates of hours worked growth and productivity, which is just output per hour, productivity growth, you get something around 2%. And that's, that's higher than most other advanced economies. As you look at it, uh, do you see historical precedents for having a growing economy with high rates over a long period of time? I mean, as you look back, I mean, is it like the late 90s, for example? What, do you, what, what analogies do you draw as you try to determine what this might be doing to the economy over the longer term? So that, that's really a question about what the, what, the, what the level of rates will be going forward, what the neutral level will be. And I think it's, it's very hard to know confidently what the answer to that will be in five years. 
some of the reasons why rates were low for the last 25 years were just uh, the aging of the global population and globalization and you know so lots of savings and relatively uh, with an aging population savings greater than investment so rates are lower and productivity was low so all of those led to low interest rates so what has changed with the pandemic you might see less effects from globalization certainly demographics that the aging of the global population has not changed um, I mean, this is a discussion we're having on an ongoing basis. It doesn't really affect current policy, but where will rates settle out? What will be a, a normal rate? So if, if, the, if a typical Fed tightening cycle would leave you at 5 or 6%, and, and this is, this is in the, before the pandemic and before this, the low inflation period, you would have had, had uh, Fed rates in 4 or 5% or even higher frequently. Are we going back to that? I really don't know. I wouldn't want to speculate. I mean, my guess is it'll be somewhere in the middle. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, your morning brief on the stories making news from London to Wall Street and beyond. Look for us on your podcast feed every morning on Apple, Spotify and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can also listen live each morning on London DAB Radio, the Bloomberg Business app and Bloomberg.com. Our flagship New York station is also available on your Amazon Alexa device. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I'm Caroline Hepger. Join us again tomorrow morning for all the news you need to start your day right here on Bloomberg Daybreak Europe. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.